Hey guys, you're listening to Totally Stoked Podcast with Amelia Travis, yoga teacher and wild child turned multi-six-figure business coach, writer, speaker, and spiritual warrior. Totally Stoked is an experiment in radical honesty. On this show, there's only two rules, show up and tell the truth. Each week, we share uncensored, truth-telling, shame-busting conversations with thought leaders, entrepreneurs, visionaries, and modern-day mystics revealing their rise to thrive stories, current challenges, and sharing their most powerful tools for awakening, growth, and well-being. This is your place to let down your guard, open your heart, and remember that being human is a crazy, wild ride, but you don't have to do it alone. So buckle up, baby, because we're heading full speed ahead to radical self-love and a totally stoked life. Are you ready? Let's dive in. Welcome back, you guys, to Totally Stoked Podcast. I'm your host, Amelia Travis, and I maybe have never been more stoked to interview someone than I am today. This is a very, very special interview. The woman that I'm sitting down with is someone who has been in my life for almost 20 years. Um, Back in our teenage years, we were ratting around Northern California being... um, (laughs) troublemakers and our friendship has lasted two decades and has always been one that's been filled with uh, curiosity, spirituality, art, music, and just an insatiable desire to explore and expand consciousness. Uh, Today, the woman I'm sitting down with is a incredibly gifted singer and songwriter, healer, body worker, artist, and modern day Miss modern day mystic whose work has impacted me not just through her music but on a very very deep and personal and intimate level when it comes to my own healing she's someone to whom in many ways i owe my life she may not even know that but uh she does now maya mcneil welcome to the show (laughs) thank you so very much this is really exciting (laughs) Oh, you guys. Maya's the coolest. So if you guys don't know her, the first thing that I want to say is um, she's always been a badass teacher for me. Even when we were uh, uh, teenagers, actually when we were teenagers, how did we meet, Maya, if you recall? Well, I'm glad we're just getting really honest from the get-go. She she taught me how to get cigarettes, I'm pretty sure. (laughs) It was called Find an Older Dude Who's Like Willing to Pick You Up in His Car and Drive You to the Corner Market and... uh, Either that or just act really confident and they'll probably sell you cigarettes. That's, I think that was our divine meeting in this lifetime. Yes, it was. So we met in, I think, sophomore year of high school. And it was during a time when I was kind of transitioning out of, um, I was like getting kicked off of the cheerleading squad for smoking too much weed. And I was, I was, I was pissed off at the world and pissed off at my parents. And I was looking for community in a way that I hadn't had it before. I felt like my friends that I'd had before didn't understand me. And I found this incredible friend in Maya who was unlike anybody I knew. She was, I felt like wild and free and making art and music and just kind of didn't give a fuck. And I was like, I like this girl. I want to, I want to hang out with her. And um, she, you took me under your wing, I feel like, and adopted me into a new community of people who made fun of me at the time for wearing white and dressing like a prep. <laughs> yes, no. Oh, what do you I guess remember so. about those years. Well, it's I really 
it feels really good to have that very loving and supportive reflection, which um, validates a part of me that was really legit. And I don't think that I probably saw it like that at the time because of the depths of insecurity and um, this like really insane practice of creating my identity and way of understanding everything that was going on around, you know, the teenagers years is such a tumultuous formative time. And um, yeah, I think I really tried to navigate understanding things a lot through peer opinion and other people's perspectives and understandings, which was really valuable um, on one level, but it also was really not empowering on many other levels. And um, it's cool to know that even back then, um, you know, there's a there's a, a reality of being a very multifaceted person, which is what I've kind of continued to to be and to grow into. Um, I looked then. up to you. Yeah, I looked up to you then. I look up to you now, not just because you're taller than me. But, because, <laughs> um, but yeah, in all seriousness, I think we should talk about that because when you say multifaceted, you know, one of the things that I talk about a lot and that a lot of the women in this community or people in this community identify with is being multi-passionate and sometimes feeling like being multi-passionate is um, a curse or is a drawback or is something negative about them uh, where they, you know, maybe would use other words to describe themselves, like saying they're, you know, scattered or flaky or haven't settled on one thing. And one of the things that I think is a really beautiful parallel about your life and my life is, you know, we are both Libras. We are both artists. We are both Woo -woo. creative, creative women. Right. And, and what happens is if you're truly like paying attention to your passions and giving yourself permission to expand in many different directions simultaneously, or maybe in rotation over the course of your life, you're going to have a lot of different things that you're good at and that you're excited about. Um, do you feel like you own that now? Like you're like, yeah, I'm multi-passionate, I'm multifaceted. It's a good thing. Or do you feel like you still sometimes stumble and struggle with feeling insecure around wearing a lot of hats? Um, both for sure. I mean, on one hand, that's such a Libra answer. Uh, yeah. And, <laughs> You know, as a healing woman's answer too, like, I think one thing that we contend with, with this, you know, this concept of, of binary of like what we're supposed to be and not supposed to be, you're supposed to be a singular thing and just go for it. It's like that, you know, has its roots in power structures that have been really oppressive for eons, for, um, for many different groups and particularly for, you know, for women, like who, who, who created this idea that we're supposed to um, be focused and like be productive and do this one thing. And, um, you know, I, I'll, as I've developed into an adult ish human, um, <laughs> one of the greatest like teachers that I've been able to, to really look to as I, you know, weave both of these aspects that you're, you're putting into to question and inquiry is, is nature. And, um, time and again, when I get lost or I feel overwhelmed or I'm questioning what I'm doing, is this productive? Is this to drive meaning in my life? You know, looking at how the natural systems around us function and there's, there's no such thing as a singular way. Um, ecosystems that are healthy are massively diverse and 
um, all of those, you know, multiple passions um, are part of a greater whole, which is, which is us. And that curiosity is, is a life force. Um, and I think where we can get scattered and it can really have a weight on us is when we come up with how we, um, you know, comply and also are kind of forced to engage with um, a modern system, you know, of, of economics, of, of how we resource our lives and where these things fit in or don't. And that can be really, really stressful to the point where you know, we don't have a concept of sovereignty or, or um, you know, what's truly valuable beyond um, the most dominant uh, value systems that we're all really inundated with. And um, like one of the questions that you mentioned was like, you know, what, what's one of the most hardest things of being an artist, being a healer, being somebody or in the healing arts and, um, uh, you know, what are some difficulties there? And I think that it is trying to figure out how to, you know, for me and may, others are, uh, there's plenty of healing I need to do around this, but um, especially around creativity, as soon as there's a question in me of like, how do I capitalize on this? How do I make, you know, make money off of this? Um, often that creativity really loses its its drive. So it's a, it's a struggle and it's a balance for sure. So you feel like the, um, the the mindset or the trajectory that most people are on of like needing to specialize needing to have a niche needing to have a focus one thing that they're really good at that that's like part of a power structure that's not actually supportive to us that this alternative to it of being able to be a renaissance woman or a renaissance man somebody who has you know well-rounded interests i mean i think i hear what you're saying in the sense that like if we weren't living in, um, you know, kind of post-industrial capitalist society, all of us would probably have a lot, like a much greater myriad of skills. Like we'd have a lot more different skills and passions because we'd have to. Would we still specialize in something? Yes, because we'd be living in community and maybe you're the best basket weaver or maybe you're really good at catching fish. And you know, that's maybe something that you're going to do, but not to the exclusion of also making sure that you, you know, right. have something to cover your feet or like, totally. um, yeah. And it doesn't, I don't even think it has to necessarily go back to caveman days, but I do think that's super important for everybody who's listening, who has felt that pressure of like, you know, you have to pick one thing. And this is something I struggle with even in coaching is like telling people you have to niche down, you have to pick one thing. And it's like, it, it doesn't mean you have to pick one thing in your life overall to do. You can continue to be multi-passionate. And in fact, I hope that we all do. Um, and maybe we focus on one area of our lives more at particular times. And I would say like in this season, you're doing a lot of work in singing and songwriting. You've really been cultivating your music and your voice for the past couple of years. Is mm -hmm. that correct? Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about your journey to, to music? Because I asked you a question. We were in Joshua Tree together late this summer. And I asked you, I, I felt like I was hearing you sing for the first time. So mm -hmm. even though we'd known each other for 20 years, I was hearing your voice, the power of it and the beauty of it. And you guys, we're going to play a song for you later towards the end of this episode um, and also give you an option to hear more of her music elsewhere. But I was absolutely overcome by the beauty of your voice. And I asked you, 
where did you get that voice? Do you remember what you told me? <laughs> um, well, yes, I remember what I told you. <laughs> um, will, you will you share? I don't know if this is where it necessarily came from, but I'm quite open as, uh, you know, creativities and creators a mystery. But uh, there was a time when I was a little kid, uh, about nine years old. Um, and I, the fact that I remember this so poignantly really it, it um, highlights the, the power of that passion and, and, and the root of like where our beings are um, aligned with something um, that is going to maybe be that like core uh, function or purpose of our being. So I was about nine years old and I was standing in front of this gas station in Minnesota near, near my elementary school. And I stopped and I, I remember looking at the face of this gas station and, and I said, God, if you give me a beautiful voice, I'll do something with it. And um, I think at the time I was, I had, or was about to try out for children's musical theater, which I did not get into. Um, <laughs> and I'm laughing with you, not at you. <laughs> I know. I, well, I was like recapping this. I was like, you know, cause, cause I didn't start writing music until my late teens, but, um, music was really important to me and really had an effect and was, was a place to kind of, um, escape to and protect myself and kind of check out of stressful situations and home stuff that was going on when I was a kid. And, um, so yeah, like, but I didn't, you know, the fact that you didn't really hear that voice until, you know, 20, 30 plus years later, um, is really significant to those things that I was just talking about in terms of like, what's the balance between, you know, what we have to do, what's our passion, and then what are all the other things that we need to tend to within our own beings to help cultivate that um, and, and clear the way for it too. Because I, because, you know, going back to that, you know, crippling insecurity, that lack of, uh, you know, permission for my own self's voice to have a space versus other people's opinions and, you know, perspectives, um, there wasn't a lot of room for um, devotion to that passion of, of singing. So you feel like you, it took you a long time to cultivate this gift and this passion because you were afraid to share it. You were afraid to use your voice or you felt mm -hmm. like, what? and what was that fear about? Was it like feeling like you'd be rejected, that you weren't good enough, that other people mm -hmm. were better, that was it actually a physical block of of you know throat chakra being able to use your voice what do you feel like that fear was yeah um i think that there was you know uh, the question of like well who am i to to say anything what do i have to say um definitely a lot of discomfort in performance that i still experience you know just to have that amount of energetic focus and um to create from from a really tender and vulnerable place. And that place inside me is really developed and has had um, a lot of practice now in, in various settings where it is really, I've had a lot of experience of it being not only well received, but really helpful to others, which gives me that deep permission to keep going. But I think, you know, early on, it was such a, such a vulnerable place. And I was really, 
um, protective of not getting hurt further. So it was not a comfortable place to potentially, you know, open up and expose. Mm. So speaking of exposing, one of the things that I like to do on this show is truth telling, shame busting. And you mentioned a, a few minutes ago that music was part of your ability to escape as a young child from a home situation that maybe felt um, scary or whatever, uncomfortable. What, what did music help you escape from or escape to? What was going on in those formative years that felt uh, that maybe contributed to that insecurity? And also um, what, what did you overcome to get here? Cause we've all overcome mm-hmm. stuff to get here. Mm-hmm. Huh. Well, that was a couple of different questions. Um, so there was a lot of, uh, a lot of stress in my household and, you know, when there's really big emotion, uh, stuff going on in adult world, a lot of, you know, we don't really understand that as kids, what all of the dynamics are, but we really feel it. We feel the impact of it. And, you know, that was around resources. It was around the very you know, patriarchal control in the household. Um, I was in a lot of fear often, and um, I didn't even really realize it at the time. I just knew that I was uncomfortable and always kind of alert to a certain degree. And um, and so, I mean, another really like visceral memory is um, dancing to Enya on the living room floor when it was just my mom home. And, you know, hopefully folks will know who Enya is or we'll go check <laughs> check her angelic strangeness out. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, that kind of music, um, Joni Mitchell, um, other folk musicians, other, just all sorts of music, honestly, um, created such a landscape to go into that, um, that it really, it, it was safe for all of the imaginative aspects of my being to get to go and play inside of. Um, and to really listen and to really like notice how it made me feel, which was something other than that contracted state of of being scared or being upset. Um, did that answer that question? Yeah, and I I love that, and thank you for being willing to share that. I think it's especially powerful to recognize that we are all energetic beings, and even when we're children, and maybe especially when we're children, we don't necessarily have the the framework or the life experience to understand the whatever's going on with our parents or with, you know, caregivers or whatever, but we're still receiving, we're still imprinting, right? Everything is still being taken in. And so you said that was really, some of what was going on there was formative around uh, resources. So like your perspective on money and abundance, some Mm. of it was around like male power structures or like male authority figures, like maybe a father relationship or like, what did that look like? How did, how, how were Mm -hmm. the men in authority responding to you or to the other people Mm -hmm. in your family? And then how are you in turn responding to them? I think that's really important because I know that for all of us, you know, we're talking today on the show about healing for all of us, when we start on this journey to healing and and healing is a practice healing is a way of being healing is something that we can embrace lifelong but when we consciously start our healing journey one of the first things is being able to actually witness witness some of the wounds witness where where these things started to form right and i think 
even our perspective of that is maybe a little bit um, false because the wounds exist in the collective. They're not mm -hmm. just in us as individual beings, but they're, you know, it's the bigger picture of the wound of scarcity of resources, right? Which mm -hmm. we Absolutely. see as a microcosm of just like, do I have money or do I have food or do I not have these things? But also in the macrocosm, in the ecosystems, in, in Gaia, in the world as a whole right now, is there scarcity or is there abundance or what's the balance of things? Mm -hmm. So I just really appreciate you talking about that. Um, your journey to where you are now in using, um, using music as one of the, your healing modalities, your journey has been really interesting. Some of the other things that you've done during the time that I've known you, you were living and working on a biodynamic farm for quite a few years, right? And mm -hmm. you developed a really um, what I've always perceived as a really powerful relationship with the land and with the natural world. And I think that informs your music. I, a lot of your lyrics um, are, uh, you know, descriptive or using the land as metaphor or allegory, or maybe not, maybe it's actually literal. Um, and your, your relationship with with mother earth with the land is something that has been a great teacher for me i would consider you a steward of the land and 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 a practitioner of earth-based spirituality those are the words that i put to it mm -hmm. can you describe a little bit about how your relationship with nature has impacted your life and your your music mm -hmm. i feel like that's very foundational for you mm -hmm. yeah it's a really good question um yeah I got the you know had the privilege of living on a sweet educational farm in Awaswa Ohlone territory known as Boulder Creek um Santa Cruz Mountains and um that was there for about four years and part of my job there was flower farming and that was really incredible because what they do with the flowers there is um uh they dry them and they turn they make wreaths as part of like one of their value goods um to to sell to support the farm and so this like functional relationship between farming and art was was really uh powerful um and learning how this very like restorative and uh, low impact um, way of of existing was um, was possible, and it, it I think that um, gosh, I mean, we could do a whole other <laughs> podcast just mm -hmm. talking about um, just the like the insane metaphors that nature has to teach us when we slow down to look and to listen, um, and you know, I think that really getting a sense of a non-human agenda around how life functions was incredibly healing and really helped um you know open me up to the complexity of of really being devoted of understanding what our human experience is here um by you know being modeled um by all this life that's been here far longer than we have and there's something really really grounding and really holding in that when we um have the privilege and opportunity to know that within ourselves um so i mean yeah i i credit that that garden for 
um, for teaching me so much and, and how it's opened up my relationship with the natural world. Because before that, I mean, I was in the restaurant industry for a while and I think a lot of people probably experience this feeling of like, oh yeah, I should go out into the nature, but maybe I'm going to stay at home and watch a movie and close my doors and, you know, not really know what time of day it is based off of the sun. Cause we're used to this, you know, inside, you know, technological artificial light living that um, we almost kind of become phobic of the natural world, which um, um, is really quite, uh, quite a terrible thing, but it's also really un unhealthy because um, when we are in the element of, of connection and, and where we come from and what, you know, essentially makes our every cell of our being, um, there's so much more opportunity, not just for well-being, but um, to really access an infinite amount of support for whatever it is that we're trying to do. You know, it's funny because as you were speaking, I realized that even the question itself is a little bit tricky because it's like asking about this relationship with the natural world, even the question implies separation, right? Here's me over here in one hand, and here's the natural world over here right. in the other hand. When when I was like, wait a minute, I'm a human, <laughs> and that means that I eat plants and then they become part of my body, which means I'm part of the natural world. Um, but our perception of it isn't always so. We definitely, and I think that's what you were highlighting when talking about being, you know, um, living in in urban areas and living, even if you don't, but like, yeah, we stay indoors and we have TVs and we have these cell phones with the crazy blue light and we just are all, <laughs> we're all fucked up when it comes to like our circadian rhythms and our, our, um, our connection to the natural world. And I want to share a little story about that, that I think is really, was really powerful for me. Um, are you comfortable with me talking about we're in Joshua tree and the, with the bees? Of course. I'm talking about the bees. All right. The bees. So, oh, we, <laughs> so we were in Joshua Tree. We had a, a group of women there for a gathering, uh, a healing gathering, the opportunity, an experiment in radical personal responsibility. Each of us decided to come to the desert, uh, 12 women, I think, or maybe 13, and as a group, be willing to witness our own shit and, and sit together in ceremony and in community um, as we kind of unpacked our boxes of darkness, if you will, but did it together, did it in a group. We also had a lot of fun. That makes it sound like it was really depressing, but it was a really good time. So anyway, um, we had, <laughs> yeah, so we had a plan to do a cacao ceremony in Joshua Tree National Park on the full moon. We were going to hike into the oh, park. Oh yeah, the bees. Yeah. And as we got to the park, there was a, a car of people, two people standing outside their car in the middle of the road, and they looked bewildered and a little bit of, of afraid, and they were kind of freaking out. We were like, hey, are you guys okay? And they're like, they were like from Denmark or something, so forgive my butchering their accent, but they were like, yes, there are very many bees and lots of thousands of wasps everywhere. And we were like, oh, that sounds not like what we want to be in to go hiking. And so... Long story short, we decided to walk slash hike slash climb giant boulders in a different area than initially planned. But nevertheless, there was still a lot of 
bees or wasps. I'm still not sure. I think they were bees. They just mm-hmm. were funny looking desert bees. They were like really weird looking bees. Anyway. Wild bees. Wild bees. And there was lots of them. Enough that I was extremely uncomfortable. Many of the other women in the group were also quite uncomfortable. Nobody was allergic. There was no... Um, there was no real threat from these bees, except for possibly somebody might get stung and that might be a little bit uncomfortable. Now, I started to get a lot of anxiety in holding the space for this retreat and wanting to make sure that everybody was comfortable being in the natural world and here were these bees who were making us really uncomfortable. And I was ready to say like, well, well, let's go, let's go get back in the car. Let's go get back in the artificial air conditioning because we're not comfortable. And yet the entire purpose of this healing retreat was to confront our trauma, was to confront, um, to confront some very uncomfortable things. And I wish that I could articulate the actual words that you invited us into Maya, but I think I can capture the sentiment And it was first reminding us that the land that we were on had been stolen from the people who were stewarding it for many years, Mm -hmm. Um, that there had been a lot of harm caused um, in the name of our comfort, right? In the name of Mm -hmm. us being able to have more resources. And so you invited us into consideration of the fact that the most honorable thing we could do for the land and for ourselves, and I have chills all over my body as I say this, to actually move towards healing would be to sit down and just be there and witness our own discomfort and allow the bees to be bees (laughs) and do whatever bees do. And, (laughs) um, And so we did, and we sat and we had our cacao ceremony. And it was so interesting because the energy of the group was so keyed up and and kind of afraid. And as we sat and calmed ourselves, the the bees that were kind of swarming also calmed and mm-hmm. kind of backed off. And it was, it, we wouldn't have done that without you. So, you know, you have, um, you've been in this, in your spiritual walk, well, for your whole life. Um, but part of it is really around, um, around deconstructing some of the ideals that support our society, namely colonialism, um, the patriarchy, uh, white supremacy. You've been doing work in the social justice vein, and that's a, a big part of your healing and your music. Um, I think my question here is, why should people care about the harm that was caused by their ancestors? Um, let's start there. Why should we care? Why should we care? We got enough problems of our own today, so why should we mm-hmm. care about all the shit that came before? That's a really great question number two. <laughs> so... You know, you spoke to earlier, you know, when kind of reflecting back to, you know, my experience as a kid, not really understanding the context of the dynamics of the household and there being a larger picture there, um, which is related to the collective, you know, it's like part of the reality was my dad was a 24 year old kid that had a kid and was trying to, you know, keep people fed and, um, you know, like that, when we look into the larger collective, um, 
of healing, it, it includes everyone and it includes everything that's ever happened and what's happening now and what is going to keep happening if we don't feel into, if we don't feel, if we don't take into consideration where um, we too, and I'm talking, you know, greatly to, to folks that have been racialized white, um, feel into wh where this separation, where supremacy, where the energetic, the very living entity of divide and conquer for one's own gain has systemically affected all of us. And those that, you know, we, that have to carry this, this privilege, this really like unearned privilege um, to have more access, to have more comfort, to be able to wander into the desert and not know who was there before and who, you know, lost their lives so we could come in and do what, do what, you know, whatever we wanted in that context, you know, it wasn't a, um, in a prayerful way. And also who doesn't get to pray there now because of, you know, the society that we are a part of and that we are complicit with and benefit from. And that depth of pain is not, um, is not separate from us and it's not um, impossible for us to feel into it. We, you know, very well will never experience or understand that depth, but that doesn't mean that when we feel into it that, um, it doesn't connect, it connects somewhere inside of our humanity. And at that place, I believe where it connects is with our own healing, with our own journey to wholeness. And we can't do that if others cannot do that because of the depth of this interdependence. Because of that, you know, what we experience with those bees calming down when we calm down, you know, and also because the, the sun set and the moon was about to rise and the air changed and the temperature changed and like, all of these things is this is how we are connected and i believe that the harm that most of us if not all of us are struggling with whatever facet or whatever cause it is it, it comes from this deep disconnection um from the from the violence of of these systems that um that you mentioned thank you so much for that and you know because you're, I know you're doing work in this area and you're someone that um, I really respect and, and listen to. For people who are just for the first time confronting their own internalized patriarchy, their own internalized white supremacy. And you know, you guys, if you're hearing this and it makes you uncomfortable, like good a little bit and mm -hmm. also um just stick with me here because because i know we're all sitting here wondering hey i don't i don't want to be part of the problem i want to be part of the solution i know our planet is in great peril i know that um we've got massive racial divide i know that uh women's rights are in jeopardy i know that <laughs> i benefit from white privilege and i'm just not sure what to do about it mm -hmm if you had to give people some tangible advice for like where to start, mm -hmm. especially white folks who are listening mm -hmm. to people who identify as white, who are like, yeah. I just don't know where to start. And they, and we have the privilege where like, we don't have to figure it out. You know what I mean? Like we can, we cannot figure it out. And many people are in that place and they mm -hmm. feel bad, but feeling bad isn't 
activism. Um, and obviously there's like, you know, vote and educate yourself on, on, um, on our legislation and all that and, and get involved. But like, mm -hmm. really, even before that, like, what would you say is like, where do we begin when it yeah. comes to confronting our own, uh, the ways in which we've internalized these systems that are, mm -hmm. that are causing harm? Well, if you're irritated or defensive or feeling overwhelmed or whatever you're feeling right now is the place to start from my perspective. There is, there's so many powerful voices around this. I'm just speaking from, you know, my intersectionality of being a white queer woman. And for me, grappling with that, like that, what you just spoke to of, um, the horror of the reality of we could choose not to engage with this and the reality of like, yeah, oh, that really, oh, this is really fucked up or this, this, that really sucks, whatever our level of like engagement is. And then, you know, there's kind of this period where this very short period where we move on, you know, we see this in the greater culture and, you know, with the inundation of so much information and the access to visibility of all of the harm that's not just new, this has been going on for a long time, but now we're able to see it via social media, via, you know, this rapid upload of technology and paying attention to how you interact with that, how you feel, where you go when you are confronted with somebody else's suffering with, you know, with something that's going on and how long you stay with that feeling and then, you know, do you disengage? Do you take it personally? Do you, you know, um, really honestly tracking how you feel? Um, and why would you do this? Because, again, this is this is related to um, your your own well being, as well as like being able to be consistent and follow through and showing up in the world the way that you want to, um, to, to, to have answers, to have solutions. I just want to acknowledge that that too is a very like patriarchal perspective. Like it's like, okay, this is really bad. Let's not feel into it. Let's just move forward. How are we going to fix this? You know, like that bypasses a really important part of, of embracing a situation, which is to like, slow down and 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 really feel into it and the way that we're better able to the way that i've experienced being better able to do this and yes i i, I work in these areas but i just want to say like working in these areas greatly a never-ending journey of edu educating myself and mm -hmm. and being educated um and it's really uncomfortable and i've been learning how to you know embrace the discomfort because that is the that is the reciprocity that is part of the reparative process um but back to um one of the tangible things that really helped me be able to be a little more present a little more present with what's going on and um not shutting down or not taking personally or not you know standing behind the the narrative of like well wait you don't know me like um mm -hmm. you know like there's a yeah, lot to not, unpack yeah, in like, that. So not all, not all people or whatever. Exactly. Like, yeah. mm -hmm. All lives matter. You know, like this comes from actually such a harmful place because it disregards what's being spoken to, what's 
you know, what's being acknowledged, what's, what the issue is. And a really powerful way to engage with that in a sustainable way is to practice being aware of, like, there's you, there's the personal you. And then there's the inheritance of these systems, these legacies, you know, be it of our privilege, be it, um, you know, of, of the social systems that, you know, have, have artificially uh, benefited us and um, also keep us suppressed. Like there's, you know, not just, um, there's all sorts of ways that, uh, you know, internalized misogyny as a woman. I have tons of internal, internalized misogyny mm-hmm. and I don't want that in there, but it's part of the package of, of, of what I live in and what we live in. And to identify that that is a system that is not me, like it's not my identity, but they're really intertwined. And so when I begin to look at this, I look at the systems and I also look at myself and like where I've been complicit and it, I hope that this is landing for folks because um, there's, it's a healing aspect to where we get really sunken in our shame or we get sunken in the, like the, the desire to, to be good, to be seen as doing good. Like it's, these are all ways that we're still living outside of ourselves. Um, And so when we really like sit with who we are, and get familiar with that, that's also the place where we can tend to ourselves and to to care for ourselves. And um, we have to do that to be able to identify and actually move, move in any way to learn about these behemoth, insidious systems of control that don't want us to know about or to do any of this, by the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's also from that place um, that we can support each other in as well. It's not like something we need to singularly, nor should we do singularly by ourselves, but, you know, especially as white women, when we lean into one another to really honestly have these conversations around race, class, and privilege, um, and to be honest about what we don't know and what we don't know we don't know, um, there's a lot of empowerment in that, and there's also less labor that is required of of people of color of an indigenous people to do that labor for us and explaining what the fuck is going on around here Mm. um so yeah you know and then on top of that there are so many incredible resources out there and the more educated you become the better you're gonna feel in the sense that you're authentically doing something not better in the sense that now you're a good person and you're not a bad person because that's not real like we're many many different types of people um you know we're inherently racist we're inherently caring possibly we're also you know we're, we're all of these things at once and that is like a really big myth to think that we're going to get out of the tendencies to be harmful and to, to not know and harm someone based on what we don't know um and so when we educate ourselves, when we learn about what's going on, again, not, not only are we creating that bridge to feeling into what's going on, but we're also learning different perspectives and learning different realities beyond the often very insular one, ignorant one of our, of our own upbringing.
I'd be happy to, uh, yeah, share a list of resources to, to tag onto this podcast. Yes, we'll drop them in the show notes. So part of the reason that I wanted to, and thank you so much for that. I know that, I know that there's, you know, it's not something that we can really successfully put into a, a, a sound bite, right? This is a, mm-hmm. these are a huge topic. And, but the reason that I wanted to kind of open that conversation is because of a deeply personal experience that you and I shared around healing mm-hmm. and specifically around healing the wound of sexual violence and its intersection with spiritual oppression and, and the patriarchy. And this is something that's, mm-hmm. you know, I've talked about a lot in my uh, social media. It's, we're talking about a lot on the podcast this spring, but long story short, you know, I spent um, six years in a pretty abusive relationship followed by four years of um, essentially glorified prostitution, dating older wealthy men just for their money. And throughout all of that time, um, experienced a lot of psychological manipulation, experienced physical harm, experienced emotional harm, mental harm. And when you talked about the internalized misogyny, and just in case anybody doesn't know what that is, it's woman hating. Um, it, it really struck a chord in me. And part of what I recall experiencing as we, um, you know, had this healing session together was this massive, massive well of grief in which I felt some of what I felt was that I deserved all of the suffering that. I experienced. Um, So I want to talk about this a little bit because, you know, when I said that you in one way have saved my life, you held space for me recently when we were in Joshua Tree to actually look at this wound of sexual violence and spiritual oppression. It was something that I didn't really even know how to label or um, name. I just knew that there was something that wasn't quite right. I knew that a year ago I set the intention for integration on my 33rd birthday. And I knew that that had something to do with the divine masculine and divine feminine. It had to do with identifying with God through the person of Jesus, but then feeling like that entire Trinity uh, has been framed as masculine and feeling this deep hunger for connection with the earth, for connection with the moon, for connection with the darkness, with other women, with, with this mystery that I think many women know the unnameable essence of what I'm describing, but it's like, there's this big piece that's missing. Right. So I set this intention to find the missing piece. And over the course of the last year, there have been so many different ways in which I've been changed, um, towards that intention of integration. But the, 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 pinnacle of it or the biggest epiphany or the biggest expanse expansion happened in community just like you're saying healing happens in community it happens with all of these other women but really with with you and and um so i had chosen to look at this kind of unknowable trauma through an entheogenic meditation i had chosen to Uh, work with the plant medicine of mushrooms of psilocybin to hopefully help access something that I was struggling to access in my conscious mind. Mm -hmm. I knew there was something wrong and I knew it had something to do with my relationship to the masculine, but I was like, I don't know, all that shit that happened to me, all those guys I had sex with, all the drugs I did, all the pain I experienced, that's all fine. Like that's all in the past, but I had never actually done any healing. I just got to the end of that chapter of my life, met my husband, closed that door and was like, I'm done with it. 
You know, it's like sweeping it all under a rug and just being like, okay, hey, it's all fine because it's over, right? When there was actually a lot of pain from multiple rapes, from questioning why I chose the path that I chose, from feeling like um, there's something wrong with me because, you know, who would pick that path? So you came to the desert and unbeknownst to me at that time, you, you felt like you were coming knowing that we were going to do some healing work. Is that correct? I had a feeling. So, so what I want to share is that like you held the space for me in this very, very vulnerable state of expanded consciousness. So like, I'll put it in layman's terms. I ate a significant amount of mushrooms and it was I was in a quite heightened state and one of the girls there asked about my past and, and it triggered this um, anxiety and felt like I was going to spin out into a bad trip. And I came to the door of where you were staying or actually I was just wandering out into the desert by myself, <laughs> trying to figure out what the hell was going on. And you asked me a couple questions. You were like, Hey, what's going on? And I was like, I don't know. I'm spinning out. I don't feel good. I feel bad. And you were like, well, what was happening when you started to feel bad? And I told you, you know, uh, this other gal asked about my past and then I started talking about those sugar baby years and then I, I started to feel like this. And without going into the details of the entire thing, you brought me into your little den, your little desert <laughs> den, this very special little converted shipping container. And you, and you gave me an invitation. And the invitation was, would you like to sit down and unpack this box full of darkness? And I was like, I don't know. And you were like, well, you know, um, why not? Why don't you know? Basically, you asked me one question. You said, do you have trouble receiving? And you said that and I just started bawling. Right? Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, I, yes, I do. Um, and so what you invited me into is what if I could hold this space for you safely, for you to unpack this box of darkness, for you to receive just being seen, just being witnessed in this pain and and that's it what if i could just be here and and sit with you mm -hmm. and that was huge and i told you i was scared because i told you i didn't know what was going to come when i opened the box and i didn't know how i could let anyone sit with me in that how i could let anyone see it because i didn't even know how i could see it and um you know, I don't remember the words, but you basically were like, I'm, that's why I'm here. Like, I'm here for this. If you'll let me, like, I'll, I'll walk into this darkness with you. And you, you guided me for the next few, I think hours. I don't really know. Um, it felt like a while and asked some really beautiful guiding questions and helped facilitate this meditation in a very skilled and loving way so that I could acknowledge that what happened to me was wrong mm -hmm. and that being sexually violated and assaulted and psychologically manipulated and controlled and abused was wrong. And it had taken me 33 years and I had never before that night acknowledged that it was wrong and that I didn't deserve it. And that was really 
I, th- I think to this day, one of the biggest shifts that's happened in my life was the opportunity to witness that wound, to then make prayers for the other people who had been involved in the harm, to make mm-hmm. prayers for myself from this state of expanded consciousness in which I was present in my physical body, aware of my emotional and mental bodies, uh, totally tuned into the energetic and pranic bodies, and also fully present as the witness, right? So I was operating on all of these mm-hmm. different uh, levels of being at the same time. And what I remember most is that you were radically present, like fully with me in each word, in each step further into the darkness. You invited me to call in my guides. You you gave me some some tools that I could use and that I could hold as I navigated this. And you helped me to make make the prayers and then also make commitments to myself and restore the mantle of my power, to restore myself to sovereignty, to the best that I was able in that Mm -hmm. state. And when you helped guide me through that, Maya, something really interesting happened. I felt energy realigning in my subtle body. And if you've never experienced anything like that, you might be like, what the hell is she talking about? And the best way I can explain it is it was like, there were pieces of me that had been manipulated or distorted or pulled out of place. And as we went through this process together, they just started like realigning. And it was like this energy in my, in my spine or in my, from, from my base to the crown of my head was realigning. And one of the commitments that I made to myself in that place was to kneel at the doorway of the mystery of the divine feminine and to agree to be an initiate, to ask to be an initiate, to ask to be a novice. And for me, this is really important and relevant to what we're talking about mm-hmm. when it comes to um, how, you know, how do we fix this or how do we look at this shit that's really hard? How do we look at these wounds? Be willing, being willing to be an initiate, being willing to be a novice, being willing to, to just to kneel at the doorway of something you don't understand and just mm-hmm. ask to learn and mm-hmm. say, I'm just coming with myself and with my willingness and that's all I have. Mm-hmm. But that's everything, this is mm-hmm. everything. And you know, the healing work <laughs> that you offered by bearing witness that night was the most profound spiritual experience of my life. And I've had some incredible, incredible, powerful spiritual experiences, but this one really took the cake. And I think the question that I'm leading to for for people or for you to share with people is when we know that there's something that needs healing, but we don't even know what it is. And if we don't have a Maya, (laughs) where do we start? Like, and I know it's a big question. It's a tall order, but I, there's so many people hurting. And since I've started talking about this, it's just like the, the floodgates have been opened with, with women, especially coming to me asking about, you know, this wounds of sexual Mm -hmm. violence and spiritual oppression. But I'm like, where do I, how do I help them? How do I help you who are listening or like, yes, that's me. Where do we start? 
Oh, well, thank you so much for sharing everything that you just shared and for your honesty and your vulnerability and for the strength that exists because of that. Um, so really inundated by, by that experience um, and hearing and feeling you um, and how this has rippled out, you know, I'd, in the ways that you really wish to support women and from that, from that place of your own experience, which is so powerful, which is, I think, this part of the illumination that you're inviting me to, to co-create with everybody here that's listening. Um, you know, <laughs> you all, we all have a Maya. <laughs> we all yeah. have, where yeah. are they? Where are you hiding all the Mayas? <laughs> I'm like, um, I need to put the link to the Maya shop in the down bar of the show notes. Or more specifically, you know, we all have that healer inside of us, that, that, that witness inside of us. Um, it's our innate birthright. It can't be taken from us we can build up a lot of scar tissue around it and really be told that it doesn't exist. Basically every possible violation and way under the sun can be um, perpetuated or perpetrated against us. And, and that will never go away because it's our right to life. And um, sometimes the healing is really even knowing that we deserve to live. But it's, I think it's really important to not, to do whatever we can to not be alone in what we're experiencing. Mm -hmm. It's really important to share with somebody that we trust um, what we're going through and to not hold it inside of us. It's not in any of our natures, in any of our, um, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely in our ancestry to not share. And it's also very much in our ancestry to share and to support one another. Somewhere down the line of our existence as homo sapiens, there we come from a place of sharing, of, of that egalitarian, that, that community um, way of holding one another. Mm. It's not about, like you said, it, it's, I, I didn't know where, what, what this was about. In fact, when you first came into you know, I invited you into the space, I got really sleepy and I got really disoriented and just mm -hmm. like, uh, you know, and in my line of work, I'm, I know to identify that as that's the fog of that depth of harm. That's the fog of the wound mm -hmm. and to stay present. And it was all I could do to stay present through that. And then the clarity, you know, we came to it because we weren't going anywhere but that. Mm -hmm. And we had that incredible opportunity to do so and, and we kept going and I think that's really a big part of what it's about is 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 not holding all of this inside of ourselves it is it is connecting it is you know even if we don't have someone to speak to or we're not ready to we have ourselves and if that looks like even daring to write out what our experience was with there's no audience, there's no judge except for ourselves to be that, you know, raw and honest about what we've experienced 
that may be the first step to really knowing inside of ourselves that that was wrong. Like that was not okay. And when we make that declaration, as you know, in your being, it, it gives us a little bit of room to have a little bit more of an objective perspective and vision of, of what has happened and what is true and what's not true for us. And um, that's, my heart feels so heavy. My throat feels tight. My stomach feels tight right now. Just like, you know, like walking into this tender place where so many women are so isolated and so um, suppressed and, um, and have lost their lives because of this type of, of supremely controlling harm and violation and um and we're going to talk a little bit about my song avalanche which was a part of that weekend um and that's that's what this song is about is to how 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 do we possibly like encompass something so harmful and so seemingly irreparable as the experience of being sexually violated, of being violated to the core of our being and of our function, our, our creative capacity, mm-hmm. our creative wisdom, you know, and this isn't just for women, you know, uh, you know, men, um, queer, anywhere on the gender spectrum, you know, people have been violated and it's not just about those that have wombs, but that everybody has this innate center of, of wisdom and that, that place that holds that birthright mm-hmm. to, um, to our right to our own sovereign beings. Mm-hmm. And um, I think I want to, I want to, I want to agree with you on mm-hmm. that really strongly because one of the things that happened in the clearest part of the, uh, the grief that came through when I was experiencing this massive outpouring of grief and my body was, was wailing i was Mm -hmm. having a vision and the vision was and it was it was being expressed in my physical body at the same time but it was a person um slumped against a wall in another place in another time but what i was witnessing was the wound in the collective and it wasn't about penetration it wasn't about being a woman and having a vagina and being raped in this very specific way it the wound was being silenced, being oppressed, being physically controlled, being restrained, being made small, being having your power taken away, um, mm-hmm. having, as you said, your life force stolen from you. And I, I want to really just reiterate and emphasize that this isn't just for female identifying people. If you're listening to this and you're anything outside of that, um, you can absolutely share in this in this understanding and in this wound. Mm-hmm. So I want to respect that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to ask about Avalanche because are we going to be able to share uh, the full recording of that with listeners? Yeah. Okay, then then yeah. before we talk about it even anymore, uh, we're going to play it for you now. Thank you. 
We 
Wow. Okay. So Maya, will you share with us a little bit more about that song? I know you played it for me in Joshua Tree and I told you then, and I'll tell you again now that it really felt to me like literally the most beautiful song I'd ever heard. Um, and you said you'd never played it for someone before who would actually experience sexual violence or, or not played it live for somebody like that. So what, what do you, what do you want to share with us about this song? Anything you want to share? Hmm. Um, I, I do believe that I've played it for others that have experienced sexual violence. And I say that mostly because, um, there's far more of us that have experienced it and gone through that experience um, or are going through that experience than there are that aren't. And I just want to like acknowledge that. Mm -hmm. um, Agree. So um, <sighs> blessings to your sweet, beautiful hearts out there. Um, so the song as a, the way that, I've really stepped into songwriting and it, it's kind of every, every songwriter has their own process of, of how they, you know, they might just write lyrics, they might play instruments, um, they might write poetry and then put it to music. A lot of people have this experience of, of, a, of a transmission. Some people have whole orchestral pieces and all the lyrics, everything complete come to them at 8 p.m. at night. <laughs> There's so many different ways that um, people write music. Um, and I've had, my experience has been very sensorial. I'll um, often write two songs at a time and they often don't have anything to do with the other and it'll it'll feel like a a storm that's coming like it'll feel like the temperatures change the the pressure in the air is different and sometimes it'll come with just the first line of a song sometimes it'll come with the chords first and I'll you know there'll be a hum that's coming and with avalanche the chords came first and um, I would play these chords and for about two months um, when I would I play them there were no words but every time I played the chords it felt like I had been punched in the stomach um, it was really it was really heavy it really hurt it was really intense and it's a simple chord progression and it could be used for any other song, any number of songs. And, um, but I think that the reason that it was so heavy is because the, the content, the purpose, the animus of the song was already present. And this was about three months before the Me Too movement hmm. really came um, full center in visibility in the media and gave a platform and um, space for women to come forward and to, um, and, and for everybody to come forward that had experienced, um, sexual violation where that hadn't <clears throat> maybe been able to before. And, um, so one day the, the prep, the, the, the allegory for it came and I had this vision of waking this little girl up inside of this cabin 
and I told her, um, it's time to go, you know, we gotta, we gotta go before the, before the mountain comes down. And so the song is, is using this, this and I, in writing this song, I was just kind of confused and overwhelmed the whole time because it was deeply uncomfortable in my body. Um, and it's this dialogue between like the internal victim and, and also with the, the perpetrator and, um, you know, an avalanche is this, this massive behemoth, uh, catastrophic event often, um, where I remember as a kid, somebody saying, you know, if you're ever in an avalanche, like make yourself into a ball. And so if you're covered in snow, at least you'll have a little pocket of air to be able to breathe within. And I think this, that crouching down and protecting yourself or being made to be small and only having a really limited space to live inside of um, is often a feeling that comes from, with, comes with um, not having your sovereignty, not having your own space to, to exist and having that, you know, um, taken away. Um, and so that, yeah, the song uses a lot of metaphor like that. And it also is this, it's, it's acknowledging the, 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 the first chorus, um, it says, I'll be catching all the sun and I'll be calling down the moon. I can't undo what you've done, but I can make some room. And I didn't know what this really meant, but it felt powerful. Those words of like, I'm calling down the moon. I'm going to catch all of the sun. And that really, that I think is part of the prayer that I have for everybody that, you know, doesn't have that feeling of own personal power in and from those moments. And that in fact, you have that power inside of you. Um, and I'm standing by you and we are standing by each other um, in that truth until we're able to see, you know, and support one another standing up again. And, um, you know, and the reality that like, we can't undo what's happened, but um, we can take that room back inside of ourselves and we can support one another. We can stand up for one another to, um, to be able to speak our truth, to be able to begin our healing. And, um, and th there's also another lyric in this song that I just recently realized that, I mean, I, I think I finished this song um, about three, I guess three years ago now. Um, and um, it's talking about um, this person that's been, been violated and after the acknowledgement that like, you know, who, who's to gain from what you choose to do with another to another because we're all gonna win or we're all gonna lose. It's gonna affect all of us, especially you as the, the person that's carrying this legacy of, of deep, deep harm and harming another. And, um, and the second chorus is talking about, um, it's praying for um, um, the perpetrator's healing. It's praying for the warrior of love to rise up inside of that person, to change, to, um, to cease harm, causing harm, and to heal themselves. So we 
heal this collective legacy of insidious harm. And that warrior of love it really came through as this feeling of Jesus. And um, I come from a, a Christian family. I was not raised Christian. Um, and honestly, my relationship to Christ consciousness um, has been through watching your experience of healing. And, um, and I realized now and kind of like the mystery of songwriting that that lyric was really coming from uh, a future collaboration with you. And this, the deep, the depth of our human medicine, maybe we want to call it feminine medicine, um, that's not linear. That's, that's, it was, it's really a testament to this profound power that um, these systems have separated us from to, to keep us in control, to keep us suppressed um, for their own gain. Um, uh, that actually, you know, again, is um, inherent and so naturally a part of each and every one of us. So there's more to unpack in the song. Um, I'm doing a little write-up about the lyrics and that will be posted on my Patreon on um, October 4th, which is today if you are listening to the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> so um, if you, yeah, if you didn't catch it on the day that the show launched, it's there. To access her Patreon, you can go to patreon.com backslash Maya McNeil Music, and that is linked in the show notes. Um, if you believe in healing through music, if you believe in healing through the arts, if you believe in um, advocating for social justice, please go and support. Um, and if people want to connect with you further, Maya, and I know that they will, uh, on social media, the best place to reach you is Maya underscore McNeil underscore music. Yeah. Yep. On Instagram. Yeah. On Instagram. Perfect. And we'll link that in the show notes as well. Is there anywhere else besides Patreon and your Instagram that's the best place for them to say what's up, tell you how much they love the song, connect with you? Are those the best places? Those are the best places. Yeah. Okie dokie. Um, you definitely want to listen uh, to the rest of the album. What's the album called? It's called Waiting for the Light to Change. Waiting for the Light to Change. And it's in um, pre-production now, so you can support that by supporting the Patreon. Um, and is is there a crowdfunding campaign for it still? Well, funny you should ask. Um, I have an Indiegogo fundraiser that will still be active until October 11th. If you would like to pre-order an album, there's also some other really awesome goodies, which include some of those flower wreaths that I was talking about earlier. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's going to be you a really- You can also write a song with her, you guys. Oh, yeah. Which is what By I the way, to do. Actually, you can write your song and I will support you in our however- I can. Yes. So yeah, there's some cool things on there. You can check that out. Um, Indiegogo fundraiser, uh, waiting for the light to change. Um, and we'll link yeah. that in the show notes as well. So definitely go check it out. October 11th is my birthday. October 6th is Maya's birthday. If you want to give us a birthday <laughs> present, go <laughs> make this album happen because this album is going to heal. It's going to heal the world. Um, and, and, and her music and her voice and her heart does all of that. So I could talk to you for a hundred million years. And because you're my moose, I get to talk to you for a hundred million years. Um, so for everybody else, if we ha if you had to leave them with just um, a piece of advice, some words of wisdom, if you're trapped in an elevator with, with everyone listening for just 30 seconds and you needed to give them a little encouragement, what would you say? 
whale. Um, if you're trying to write music, you're trying to do any sort of creative thing. Um, if you're trying to just do anything that's kind of human based, um, be kind to yourself, really be tender with yourself and, um, really as best as you're able to extend that love outwards, wherever you're able to, it, it really makes such a huge difference. Um, yeah, that can be very underestimated, but it's, uh, it's really quite powerful. So, yeah, and I think advice. most of us are not really that great at it. So let's <laughs> all work on showing a little more loving kindness to ourselves. Oh, Maya, thank you so much for your presence. It was so, such a joy. And, um, and I hope that you guys have dried your tears from listening to Avalanche and are ready to go listen to more of Maya's music. Thank you for taking this time. Thank you so much, Mila. My number goose. one goose. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys so much for hanging out with me on another episode of Totally Stoked Podcast. If you love this episode, if it impacted you in some way, please grab a screenshot and share it right now to Instagram stories. Tag Stoked Yogi, hashtag Totally Stoked Podcast. Each week, we'll grab one listener who shared and send you some Stoked Yogi swag. Also, if you love the show, please subscribe, share it with a friend, or head over to iTunes right now and leave us an honest review. Your support and feedback make this show possible. If you have ideas about how we can improve, please send them to podcast at stokedyogi.com. Until next time, you guys, keep showing up, loving people, telling the truth, and remember, keep living your life totally stoked.